Valvoline instant oil change is the quick, easy, trusted place for your next oil change. Valvoline's convenient, no appointment needed. You can even stay in your car while they do the work. You have to sit in some waiting room, you know? Mm -hmm. Their friendly certified technicians have over 270 hours of training and they get you in and out fast while performing a thorough free 18-point maintenance check with your oil change. We got someone here who just experienced this, our own Aaron Blair. Blair, well, how was it? It was awesome. I took my Jeep uh, jock jams in and got a sweet oil change. And uh, and I actually brought a book because I thought it would take a while. And uh, they had me in and out in like 15 minutes. It was awesome. Well, also, you should point out, you can't read. I can't. So, But I wanted people to <laughs> you, think I could. Yeah, but I mean, uh, come on. Yeah, maybe somebody hot is there. And they're like, literate. oh, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, and then, then you know, now I've, I'm, I got a date. Yeah, yeah I don't but, think that's, uh, that's not how people meet each other. Didn't, didn't have time for that. Yeah, so if you see Blay driving around in his beautifully oiled jock jams, <laughs> give him the old thumbs up. <laughs> or throw a tangerine at him. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Valvoline, they're doing it right. Visit valvoline.com slash Conan for an exclusive offer towards your next oil change. This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. (laughs) Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries and I'm done with mine. And- uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. Hi, my name is Seth Myers. And I feel anxious and excited about being Conan O'Brien's friend. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walk and lose, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Hey there, welcome to Another episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I put a slight pause. Did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. I said, welcome to, and it was the slightest pause to create a little bit of drama. Did you forget what the name of your (laughs) podcast is? I did. I forgot what we were doing. (laughs) But I'm now passing it off as this calculated micro pause because I'm a true master of the form. That's how I'm going to pass off the fact that I don't know where I am or what I'm doing. How are you guys? How are you doing, Sona? I'm cool. Okay. Do you need more? I don't no, know. No, that's uh, fine. No, that's great. That's what it. What a great instinct of mine to uh, on the basketball court. Always go to the go to the hot hand, the person who's ready to go. And I pass it off to Sona. I just drew the rock, and you went. I'm cool. I'm good. Matt, how about you? I'm okay. Wow, incredible. Well, thank you both for uh, injecting this podcast today with energy. <laughs> energy I can bounce off of. <laughs> Uh, you just, um, really, I just got, I got nothing, nothing from you, Sona Nope. and nothing from you, but, but I will say there are mitigating circumstances. Sona, you are carrying two living human beings within you. Yes. You've got to be exhausted. I, all I want to do is nap and eat. You're stopping me from that right now. And I just, uh, so every I'm, second people are listening to you on the podcast is time that you're not unborn. Ch- your unborn children are being denied sustenance and sleep yes. and, and rest and nourishment. Yeah. You owe, you owe them an apology. Do you have any idea what the names will be yet? We, Mark and Marco. Mark and Marco. <laughs> I know, but we can't go with that. That's just, that was Shaq's idea. And I don't know if people listen from one to the next. I hope you do, in which case Matt's thing will make sense. But that's what Shaq's idea was. You're not doing it right. You don't what? say, oh, you guys probably didn't listen to it. You you know, you have to like be like, oh yeah, that's what Shaq said. And then, you know, you are right to a previous yeah. episode you're and then it'll right. make people want to go listen to it. I can't believe I have to tell you this. You're right. I, I, I shouldn't do that. I'm too self-hating. So, so it's more like, and people should hear, that's my natural reaction is no one has heard, I always assume no one's heard any other one of these. 
but I I shouldn't do that. I should just assume that everyone's listened to all of them multiple times. Well, uh, I because don't, I it's don't know about that. pretty much a religion. So, as you know, Shaq- Is there somewhere in the middle we could find for those two things? As you know, Shaq uh, suggested Mark and Marco. (laughs) By the way, I'll tell you guys, I was in, I forget even where I was. I was in Mission Hills. Yes, I was in Mission Hills, and a guy came running up to me with a mask, and he was very excited- and he said, Conan, Conan, I just want you to know, because he's clearly a fan of the podcast. I want to say he was like 30, 35 years old. He said, I just want you to know, I don't care what Shaq and Charles Barkley said. You you could have been in the NBA. <laughs> so he took it seriously. He was like wounded for me. And he said, oh, and say hi to Matt and say hi to Sona. And I went, I, I will. And he went, but you could have, you could have. Don't let them put you down. Oh, <laughs> like <laughs> He was looking at you while he said this? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And I said, I'm so sorry about your glaucoma. <laughs> Absolutely insane. He thought I really could have made it in the NBA. Oh, when I only, that's I only, sweet. I only say that to NBA stars to get the ball rolling, so that they can shit on me and we can have some fun. But uh, we have a great show. Uh, my guest uh, today, of course, was a uh, cast member on Saturday Night Live for 13 seasons, where he served as head writer and host of Weekend Update. Now, here's where things really get interesting. Now he hosts Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC. So he and I, our careers overlap in about 35 different ways. And so I'm delighted to talk to this gentleman. I think this could be fascinating and therapeutic. Very excited to speak with Seth Meyers. Seth, welcome. We're about to have our longest conversation. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we've met each other a lot. We've met. We've met a bunch of times. But I will tell you the fascinating thing about this podcast, if that's even what they're called. That's what they're called, right? They're podcasts. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This radio show, this uh, format, is that you are not alone. So this is the longest conversations I've had with just about anybody in the business. This podcast is my excuse to talk to people that I like and I admire, and I don't ever really sit down and talk to them. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm really genuinely looking forward to it. Well, we don't have, that's about it. That's all we have. (laughs) Yeah, because we don't have much overlap in far as what kind of jobs we've had. God, no. Or buildings we've worked in. Yeah, I know. It's in... You and I have uh, an insane amount of overlap. <laughs> right. You're probably one of the few people I can talk to in the world who has experienced many of the things I've experienced. So let's get into it. Because you've murdered, right? You've committed murder. <laughs> I've murdered. I've been a part of, you know how it happens when you're new at SNL, mm-hmm. where you do a murder for someone else <laughs> well, in hopes that it will help get, you know, that they'll laugh at your sketch. Yeah, it's called crisscross. Uh, it's usually <laughs> another writer uh, who's not getting right. sketches on, and they always convince you, if you murder someone, I'll laugh at your sketch. Uh, yeah. And when you think about it, this crime makes no sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it never, barely, because there's no way to, you can't stand up and complain when they don't laugh at your sketch. That's what happened to me. What That's happened. what happened to me is Jack, oh. Jack Handy said, if you can kill this guy who has the apartment above me that I really want, murder him, I won't be linked to the crime and then I'll laugh at your sketch. I murdered this person who will go unnamed, a Canadian guy and uh, who was living here in Manhattan. And uh, he got to move into the apartment and then never laughed at my sketches. And many of my sketches were cut. Well, also though, to his... In his defense, if he laughed at your sketches, that could be used as evidence later if they were not good sketches. That's what he if said. He was the only <laughs> that, standalone. You know what? This is so laugher. this is crazy. That's what he said. He said, "I can't <laughs> laugh at your sketches now. The police are snooping around, and uh, I've already wasted your time because <laughs> my riffs are my, my riffs are known as real time wasters, and nothing is gained <laughs> except uh, you are one of the most uh, liked." people and respected people uh, in this crazy world of late night. And I didn't realize, I always assumed you were a writer who, like me, Lorne said, here, stand behind this cannon because everyone else is dead. And then (laughs) somehow years later, I was like a performer. Uh, You, am I correct that you were hired at Sarnet Live to be a performer? Yeah, I was hired as a cast member first. I did not know that. A lot of people don't, which I think speaks to how unmemorable a performer (laughs) I was. It was not the right fit. I mean, it was very lucky that it happened that way, obviously, but it was not a time where I felt 
as though I had my feet under me particularly well at the show. I started with people like Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell and Tracy Morgan, and I thought, well, they, they're very good and I'm not, but they have experience, and uh, once I have experience, then I'll be them. And then the next generation right under me came in, and that was Hayter and Sudeikis and Forte and Fred and Samberg, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh, I can't do this. I'm not, I preferred writing for them more than I would like writing for myself. Right. And that's when I realized, oh, well, yeah, I have to find a job here where I can just be myself. Right. Did you talk to Lauren about, people don't usually go to Lauren who are writer, uh, who are performers and say, I want to be a writer. I want to stay up all night and I want to be mocked by the, uh, and made fun of by the cast members and put out my most brilliant ideas but disappear in the background afterwards and not be uh, recognized immediately and allowed into the Serenout Live after party. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> At least I had some status because I had been a cast member for a bit. And of course, right. as you know, people might not know, when you're a cast member, you're, you're doing as much writing. Certain cast members do as much writing as, as a lot of the writers. And so Some, I not, was, that was not, I think that, that became more so, but that was not, I'm not even doing it. In my day, uh, many cast members, they were around for a bit and then they, they, went, they went out to dinner and then they went home and slept. And I really envied them. I definitely slept there every Tuesday night for my entire tenure at the show. So I was not uh, dining or whining right. my way through my time there. But I, so I didn't go to Lorne as much as Lorne, came to me because I was a fairly prolific writer as a cast member. And I didn't, and because again, I would write sort of big group scenes or I would write monologues. I would write the kind of things that I don't think cast members normally wrote. Right. You know, cast members, if they wrote, would write sort of a big character piece for themselves, which obviously I didn't have those skills. And so Lauren came to me after, when Tina was leaving, and asked me if I wanted to step in, uh, not as a writer, but as a writing uh, supervisor, mm -hmm. and then eventually head writer when she left. So... It was a very weird jump because I went right from not being a credited writer on the show to, to sort of that job. One of the best experiences I had, the experience that most changed my life, I'm going to say second most to the, the late night show, but being a writer at Sound Out Live and having to cut your teeth in that environment, there were so few slots and so few chances to get a piece on that you could really feel the competition. And I think even Lauren would admit he... He encourages that. I think in that way, I found it very Darwinian when I was at Sound Out Live. Well, I do. I mean, I think it became, there was a time where it was more supportive, but the one thing that never changes is the amount of real estate in each given show. Yes, and right. the thing I feel really bad for about the current group is it's, I think big casts make it so much harder in that at the after party, you know, when they ever have after parties again, the bigger the cast, the more people who didn't get something on. Yes. And we had a really nice era from like 06 to maybe 2011 that was a smaller group. Yeah. And that made it for a nicer time. And again, there were times where people were upset. But I think that those small groups, and I feel like you maybe worked for there when there was a small yes, group. Yes, I was. I mean, it was a very, when I first got yeah. there, it was, you know, Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, John Lovitz, Jan Hooks, Nora Dunn, Victoria Jackson. But it was, it was a tight... Unit. I think another thing that's changed, I don't know what your opinion is, but, and I don't want to hear your opinion, I just want to say my opinion. <laughs> and if you say your opinion, I'm going to have it taken out so it looks like. Sure, sure, sure. We're going to actually so maybe just confirm yours. Should I just like back you up? Well, we actually have a tape of a person who roughly sounds like you going, uh huh, uh huh. And we're just going to play that. And then gotcha. right, right on, right on. And then. Uh, right on. Yeah, right on, right on. That's my uh, that's my catchphrase. Yeah, yeah. It's why you never made it as a cast member. It's right, you're, all your characters just said right on, right on, and and you kept bringing. And they sort of, but always, yeah, they would like echo more popular. Yeah, oh yeah, recurring yeah. Characters. <laughs> exactly. Here's a much more famous character. Hey, I worked this out with this really famous cast member. Bill Hader's going to come on and just do this killer character, and then I go, uh huh, right on, right on. By the way, that's basically what I did with Stefan. I was basically the right on guy to Stefan, and it really hurts my feelings that your bit is my reality. <sighs> you think that was just a bit? <laughs> I thought about this oh. I thought about this a lot, Seth, and that was a way to expose you for the sham that you really are, which will happen nine more times. That was just the first one. Right on. Can you count the <laughs> <Right on. laughs>
One of the things that has changed at SNL and is the stunt casting, that didn't exist in my time. No, I mean, I think the closest we had was when uh, Tina came to play Sarah Palin. But I think when that happened, most people had forgotten that she had left. Yes. Because she was such a recent alum that it just made sense. And also nobody at the show thought, oh, uh, uh, I think I w- I'm a better match for Sarah Palin than Tina. Right. Well, when Sarah Palin hit the scene, many of us said, oh, look, they're all talking about this woman who looks like Tina Fey. <laughs> so, I mean, right. literally, she looked, she just, she, they, they resembled each other so much. And then, uh, and Tina is, an, is, is coming home to do it. You know, she's, she's come back to the mm-hmm. fold to do it. I think in this new era where you can say, um, yeah, we got uh, really good. Really good uh, impression, uh, Seth. You're you worked hard, and it's really good. Anthony Hopkins, we're thinking. <laughs> we're going to get Anthony Hopkins. I think we'll look at Hopkins, mm-hmm. and then we'll look at you. Yes, and we'll see how the wigs the wigs look. <laughs> um, I, you know, the, the other thing to speak to is, you know, so I did uh, in in a very unmemorable political year on the show. I played uh, John Kerry, and Will Forte played George uh, W. Bush, and neither of us are known for that. Uh, nor when anyone sees those two real-life people do they think of us. With that said, it was so valuable for my time at the show to live through that and get those sketches and get that time. And again, so, I mean, I guess that's the trade-off, right? Like, it wasn't in the moment. I went, Lauren probably looks back and goes, wow, I could have had two A-list celebrities, and that might have, you know, pepped up that 2004 election year. But it was also built equity in the show in that Will and I got, I think, a little bit more sure of ourselves from doing it. How many years has it been now that you've been doing the late night show? We just hit seven. We just hit seven in February. Good for which you. Which is crazy. Uh, like you're the one of the few people I can talk to about this. I mean, specifically that late night show, which uh, is, you know, obviously such an important memory for me and my being there and you doing it. And you look at the cool little history of that show. I will tell you this, there's nothing in the world that's better than doing a show out of Rockefeller Center. That's, I never, ever took for granted walking into that high church of comedy. Yeah, and I remember when you would, when I would run into Letterman writers who worked both places at NBC and moved over to CBS, they would always say, like, don't ever underestimate how great it is to work in 30 Rock. And I've worked here because I basically took three weeks off between my last SNL and my first late Mm -hmm. night. And so... I've been, uh, I think August will be 20 years uninterrupted working in this building. Between SNL and the late night show, it, it's just about 20. It's as magical as you think it would be walking out of there at Christmas time. Um, I'm just bringing up Christmas because it's a Christian holiday and I like to alienate <laughs> anyone listening who's not not Christian. Uh, right. But, and you're pretty upset when non-Christians celebrate it. You know right? what? I'm going to tell you something. Listen, don't, no, don't laugh, Sona. Sorry. I just think it's ours. It's all we've got. We don't have a lot in Christianity. Wait a minute. Hold on. I'm thinking about all the stuff we've stolen from other people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a few things. Oh, shit. It's I just remembered things. Rome and the Vatican. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, all right. I've probably been wrong on that one, but... Uh, I will say I wouldn't mind two floors between... So I, because I'm on eight, I'm right down the hall from SNL, and sometimes it's a little too close to my previous life. Oh, I didn't realize. Only on Thursdays. Like, you know, again, because SNL operates on 17 from Monday through Wednesday. I don't see them at all. And then on Thursdays when I have a show and they are starting their week... You very much feel like the smaller show. It's the small. It's the PT boat getting a little too close to the battleship. The water gets choppy. <laughs> yeah. um, just the wake. <laughs> yeah, just the wake. Just the wake alone will kill you. I feel like you had people. Am I wrong that David Bowie was a gigantic famous person who was on your show in fairly short order? Like, how many years were you doing the show until like a person like David Bowie was coming to do it? I premiered September of 1993. There's a quite a while there where I'm talking to anybody who will talk to me. <laughs> anybody. And and I don't want to start naming names because that's mean. But sure. But I literally know exactly. but literally right. like 60s TV stars that no one's thinking about anymore. I'd be like, you remember him falling out of the tower on F Troop? He blew quite a bugle. He played Dobbs. Uh, you know, here he is. And you're like, what are you talking about? You know, he was the chimp in <laughs> McNulty and the Chimp. And so there was, 
there was a while where it was like that. And then as the ship started to write, um, I think because there were so few talk shows and I'm in New York and we started to get good press and a good reputation, that's when suddenly uh, I'd come in and be like, yeah, well, Elton John's on tonight. And I'd be like, what? I'm starstruck in retrospect, meaning I think about it now and I go, I can't believe he spoke to me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, no, he came on six times. Did people forget, like, obviously you never forgot, and I think people who pay attention to comedy always remember that you were on the chopping block early, right? That's part of the legend. Did guests like that, was that part of it that you were also this really cool comeback story or by the time they came on they were just a fan of the show I and don't it was, this think is the most cool of them show. cared about the comeback story but you just assume uh, like things on TV are supposed to be on TV yes the fact that you're there and there are NBC cameras pointing at you and your suit fits by logical extension this person should be there you don't walk into an ice cream shop and yell at the person who's putting a scoop of you know mint ripple on your on your cone what are you doing serving ice cream? You just assume they're wearing the outfit. Right. Uh, All right, you've got to prove it. Yeah, but prove seriously, it. Seriously, an ice cream Seriously. Store. Okay, you got the white paper hat, but I don't buy it. I don't buy that you really have, um, you, uh, you will pay for what you've done. Uh, I just like to throw that in occasionally. I'm gonna, every now and then I'm going to sure, sure, sure. just throw in like a weird accusation yeah. there. They're called- Send the goosebumps down the arm. Yeah, they're called microaggressions. And uh, I like to, oh. uh, I just like to filter- uh, yeah, I don't feel like I get enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, I have to say, I do think, uh, to me, one of the things that I'm most curious about, uh, and I, have, I, I don't know your story, which is your linkage to being funny as a kid. When did you realize, hold on a second, like an origin story. I have this power. I have this, uh, this thing I can do, and I'm really in love with the sensation of using this secret power that I have. Can you take me through that? Yeah, I think it springs from the fact that my dad's very funny to this day. Mm -hmm. Wonderful storyteller, and he's in finance, so it wasn't, this wasn't his background, but I, I would see him uh, publicly and certainly at home hold court in a way that I found alluring. And my mom, God love her, has laughed at everything my dad has ever said. She's a very beautiful woman. And I think my brother and I both thought, oh, this is how you go far well above your weight class with the opposite sex <laughs> mm -hmm. as you make them laugh. And then in school, I was definitely the kind of kid who would whisper a joke in the back of the class mm. uh, as far as instead of make a joke in the front of the class. It took me a while to build up the confidence to try to do that. But I remember I would go home and tell my dad things I had said but give them to another kid. Mm -hmm. Say, this kid's, and then this kid said that. And, and he would often think it had been funny. But I wasn't ready to even take credit at home. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You couldn't admit to your dad that you had said the funny thing. It had to be, you needed a proxy. Yeah. Does that speak to writer to you, Conan? Does that, does what I just explained uh, yeah. sound like a writer's origin story? Yes, yes. It, no, it really does. I mean, uh, first of all, when you said I whispered jokes to my friends, I can't emphasize that enough. And uh, if I had to write seven things that I'd love to get across on this podcast, one of them would be funny people, very funny people are often shy and it takes them a long time to find their footing because that is not known in the world of youth often. They, the loud, brash person who jumps up on the desk uh, and it, it, at the prankster, like I was terrified of pranks. I'm still terrified of pranks. I don't, I don't like pranks. I don't, people are always saying, uh, George Clooney, he's such a funny guy. You know, once when he was rooming with this other actor, you know, he filled his toilet bowl with blood, so he thought that he had colon cancer or something. Oh, I, just, I think I'm making this up, but my point is- <laughs> Well, that's what Clooney's known for, is the old yeah. blood in the bowl Soft trick. Pranks. Yeah, his favorite thing is, no, his favorite thing is to show up after the colonoscopy and go, ha ha, I'm the reason you thought you had colon cancer. Oh no. It's very hard to say, ha ha, I'm the reason you thought you had colon cancer, but- but Clooney, if anyone can pull it off, it's Clooney. Well, and, and the thing is, because it's Clooney, even the person who did the explorative surgery is laughing. You know, even sure. uh, everyone's laughing. Uh, the guy who had three inches of bowel resected is laughing <laughs> because it's Clooney. And um, yeah. and Clooney, I know you're a big fan of the podcast, but you know you do it. And it's it's you can get away with it, but a lot of people can't. <laughs> 
If I do that, I get sued by the American Medical Association. But I think you can, I think you will agree with me, Seth, that some of your favorite funny people and really funny people like yourself, you can't see them in the classroom often. There's a quietness that I relate to. I also relate to my father's uh, a funny, very funny man. And I used to notice he would make a room full of people laugh really hard and it got my attention. I think uh, something inside me resonated, like just exactly what you're saying, that, oh, what is this? And I think if I had had seen my father shoot a three-pointer, I wouldn't have felt the same way because there's nothing in me that can shoot a three-pointer. You know, I mean, I can shoot a three-pointer, but it it won't go in. Uh, right. And so I don't think that's called shooting a three. <laughs> you can famously get that far away from a basket and chuck a ball. I am known. With no I was, accuracy. I was known in the athletic world, and scouts used to check me out. I could get outside, outside the paint, and I could whip yep. a ball up in the air, and, event, and it would sail sort of towards the basket and then land over and sort of uh, rattle around in the stands. And so that's why scouts ch- checked me out. I never hit a three-pointer, which was... Noteworthy. Right, because it's very hard to not ever hit the one. I'm the only person I know that's I've launched in my life. I spent years launching uh, three-point shots uh, just in, a, in an empty gymnasium uh, with a camcorder. And I think, I think I've launched well over 35,000 attempts. Mm-hmm. None of them even, many of them don't hit the backboard. I've seen the supercut of just the ones that hit the camcorder. Yes. They, you hit that more. Put that out. There was a time when I hit the camcorder uh, 15 times in a row. And Steph Curry has oh, tried right. to do that and he can't do it. I saw the one where you hit the camcorder, which then went through. Yes. Oh, I did hoop. that plenty of times. I would hit the camcorder and it would, the camcorder would ricochet off the flying ball and do a spiral up into the air and all net just right through. Beautifully shot too, because again, I know it was, you just hit record and let it do nope, its thing. No, two cameras, like Seth, a... two cameras. Oh. <laughs> I always use two cameras in case the camcorder ever got knocked in. Well, that's great. A lot of beaches out there, but only one beach is the beach. Why did your voice change? You heard me. Only one beach is the beach. <laughs> Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Say it with me. Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach. Mer- you didn't. I just, just oh, a phrase. Sorry. You don't have to say it with okay. me. Uh, Myrtle Beach is 60 miles where you belong. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? Everyone always talks about Myrtle Beach being the best beach. So much so that people refer to it as the beach. Yeah. The beach is where your best self comes out. Myrtle Beach has 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline and endless things to do on your trip. You love to eat, oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, I know the answer to that one. There are over 2,000 restaurants serving up fresh seafood, southern classics, and low country cuisine. Love music? Who doesn't? Live music is the soundtrack to the beach, or as I call it, the beach. <laughs> There's live music every night of the week, all year round. Plan your trip to the beach at visitmyrtlebeach.com. I gotta say, everywhere I go, people are talking about Monopoly Go. And for good reason. It's an absolute hit! Yeah. I love Monopoly. People love Monopoly. And look, Monopoly's been around for a very long time. It's one of the oldest board games ever, okay? Okay. But lately, I walk around and I just hear like, Monopoly Go, Monopoly Go, Monopoly Go. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And they say, we're playing Monopoly Go. You can play it with your family, your friends. It's a straight delight. There's always something new to do partner events where you can build on each other's boards and crazy tournaments with team events you can recruit your friends for, or you can just compete to outdo them all on the leaderboards. Mm. And when you're not messing with your family and friends, Monopoly Go is always throwing new stuff at you. They have taken Monopoly to the next level. I didn't think Monopoly had to go to the next level, but they did. (laughs) (laughs) There's timed events like massive multipliers for all your winnings and challenges like treasure hunts or money sprees that have fun new mini games. Plus, with tons of rewards to collect, like stickers for trading with friends and hilarious emojis that are perfect for gloating, there's always a reason to dip back in. Yeah. Man, they cracked it, you know? They did. So join the fun. Download Monopoly Go now free on the App Store and Google Play. Conan 
Brian Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products so your home is safe and smart. You can check in on your home and manage your security systems from virtually anywhere. Google Nest cams can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. You can know that there's a package out there. I know. And not a person. You don't have to that do helps. anything. Yeah, sometimes a person rings the doorbell and I think it's a package. Anyway, <laughs> and with Nest Aware as part of your monthly ADT service, you can get 30 days of event video history, even smarter notifications, like when a familiar or unfamiliar face is seen. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just a tap. Mm. I'm always setting off alarms accidentally. This is helpful for me. Oh, good. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, well, you got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are trademarks of Google LLC. Like, for example, the Lauren Michaels of it all. Lauren's got Saturday Night Live. He was the whole reason I got the late night show, and I'm forever, uh, you know, indebted to him uh, for that, obviously. I mean, he gave me my career. But it is interesting when you're in the peculiar situation of he, he's producing Saturday Night Live, but he's also producing the late night show. And yeah. It was always clear to me, and I obviously could never blame him for a second for this, but it's so funny because many of us, I don't know if you're one, but we kind of turn Lauren into a dad. You know, we, we all have our own dads. And, and yes, of course. You seem to love yours. He's a father figure, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a father figure. And then you realize that he's got this uh, child called Star Not Live, and then he's got this other child called The Late Night Show. Now, now of course- he has, you know, the Tonight Show, and I think Wheel of Fortune, <laughs> the Wheel of Fortune, and all these other shows. That, but back yeah. in my day, it was, you know, he did Saturday Night Live and he did Late Night, and that was, other than the occasional movie, that was that was it. But there in Rockefeller Center, those are the two things, and it was so clear to me that Saturday Night Live's his real son, you know, and I'm. It's not. It's not clear that I'm his real son. That you know, I haven't had a DNA test, and uh, I. I'm sort of this, uh, his other son is this amazing athlete and uh, I'm kind of a stoner. <laughs> I don't know, it just. <laughs> I guess I think of it to feel good about it, mm-hmm. that I, SNL's his farm and I worked there a really long time mm-hmm. until he said to me, you should go start your own farm. Right. Because it is, you're taking the skills that you learned there and ultimately, and I'm sure he felt the same way about you or else he never would have given you the job. Like he has more confidence in you and your ability to make decisions than he does maybe for a lot of the people he spends a lot of attention on mm-hmm. at SNL in any given week. And it also should be noted, you know, I do this show with Mike Shoemaker, who you know really well, and, and he was, you know, worked so closely with Lauren for all those years at SNL. So we as a team, I think, mm-hmm. Lauren looks at us and, and, or at least the way we sort of justify the fact that we, you know, he's never here. Right. <laughs> like, we, we literally, we see him, you know, he'll take us out to dinner and, and tell us we're doing a good job, but it's not like he ever comes down and, and, and says, you know, I feel like the lights are a little hot, or, uh, <laughs> you know, I, who's, who's doing props now? I feel like the props <laughs> lack of realism. Yeah. So, I remember when I was head writer and doing Update that he called me in because he was upset with the way the shows had gone, mm-hmm. maybe for just three or four episodes. It right. wasn't right. like a, a season dip or anything. And I remember saying, well, I think with Update, and he snapped at me, Update's the last thing I'm worried about. And I realized that was the praise I was going to get for Update. <laughs> and we were the last. And I just, I like I was in a Tennessee Williams play. I was like, the last thing, Mr. Michaels. Right. I was so flattered. And I was like, oh, that's what you get yep. from, and then, but you have to like take it and realize he meant it. Like he, he wasn't worried about Update. He thought Update was in a good place. Um, and then we got onto all the things that I could be doing better with the rest of the show. But I, I, I think that, yeah, he's not. And the other thing is you think because he's Lauren Michaels, he's going to be really good at, at telling you exactly what he needs and exactly how to do it. And trust me, kid, I've been in this business for so long and, and you got to do X, Y, Z. But he really isn't that. I think 
also one of the reasons this show thrives is he kind of, like you say, lets everybody find their own way and mm-hmm. it either works or it doesn't. But he doesn't have time to individually, one-on-one, give people guidance. Um, you, I don't know. Have you been reading the, uh, the Mike Nichols book? Because um, it's really great. No, I actually, uh, someone just gave it to me. Everybody says when you went out to dinner with him or you did a play with him as a director, he would just tell stories about himself and famous people. But you, the more time you spent with him, you realized, oh, I think those stories were supposed to, like within that story was a piece of advice <laughs> that he wanted me to take with me. Right. But there was a bit of, and I feel like Lauren's like that a lot, that you realize halfway through a story he's telling you about some play he did at Toronto University that it's about you. What you're saying is that Confucius would tell a story about a grasshopper and a frog trying to cross a stream and there'd be great magisterial beauty in it and knowledge that you could relate to yourself. Lauren does that, but it's a story about Mick Jagger and Paul Simon yep. trying <laughs> yes. to cross a stream and Jennifer yeah. Lawrence is on the other side. And, uh, but it's right. the same, if you think about the story, it really is the same message that Confucius was giving. And it's in Prague during the Velvet Revolution. <laughs> and, and we flew there with, with Chris Dodd. And yeah. <laughs> it, someone once said, when Lorne gives a note, do you know Andrew Steele? I don't know if you know no, Andrew I Steele. No, I do not. He's a writer there no, for a long time. No. Uh, Andrew Steele uh, said that when Lorne gives a note to someone who then gives the note to the writer. It's like a tiger told a pyramid, and now the pyramid has to tell you. Like that's, <laughs> that, it's not even that it's in a different language. It's like different beings with different... It's hopeless. Yeah. Was it celebratory when you got the job? Absolutely because, not. Yeah. Absolutely not. So how did you find out? How did he tell you? He didn't tell me. The network called my agent. My agent called me. And uh, I swear to God, I think, I don't think Lorne was celebrating me getting that job because I think a lot of people were coming up to him and saying, wow, you chose a complete unknown with really no on-camera experience to replace David Letterman. Gutsy move, Lorne. And I think he was rightly scared. I, he might say now, oh, of course, I always knew Conan had it. And I, I, to his credit, he, he saw a lot of things in me and then, sure enough, we debuted, and people were nice initially. And by, by initially, I mean for like the first week or so. And then uh, Lorne has a technique that he uses, which is, it's very interesting, but he likes to, I don't know if he's ever done this with you, but he'll tell you a bad thing someone said about you, but then tell you afterwards, immediately after he tells you the bad news. That's And it's stuff that you wouldn't have heard otherwise, but he used, you know, he then tries to reassure you that it's going to be okay, even though he's the one that told you. So he used to call, he'd call me like late at night and go, I think, I think what the, I think what the Michigan Herald Dispatch wrote is despicable. <laughs> and I would say, what? Like, literally he got me out of bed and I go, what? Well, I just, you know, you're not a, you're not a mindless cretin. You're not a, an asexual, uh, you know, you're not an asexual monkey on, amph- <laughs> on amphetamines babbling nonsense, uh, you know? Who, who, I mean, you know, like, why would someone even write that? Why would they go to the trouble? And I would say, oh, my God. He'd go, look, no one's going to remember it tomorrow. So you've got to just put it out of your mind. <laughs> it was this, this. And I think it was, to be fair to Lorne, he had put himself on the line for me. And so he didn't like reading that. And I think he needed to make sure that I knew that that was out there. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't think he was wrong. I don't, I sound like a masochist maybe, but... <laughs> Okay. I should tell you, I feel like my writers, when they started on the show, they all wanted to write for your show in 1997. Right. The style, and it was, and I don't blame them, and it's a style I liked as well, but the one thing that I would always try to point out is like, this can't be, the one thing, this can still be funny, but it can't be new. Like, I just want you guys to appreciate that, like, it's not a new thing. Right. However, you know, 20 years later. It, the, the only frustrating thing is you you think you know what you're going to be best at or what people are going to like most. Right. And that was a really frustrating just because how right Lauren was. I remember when I started the show, he said, it'll take a year and a half 
And in my head, just out of ego, I remember thinking, I bet it takes six months. And I, to the day, I think it took a year and a half before I walked into work and thought, I think I, wa- I know what I want to try to do most nights. I think doing this kind of show, it's, it's, un- it's a unique problem. And the only way to crack it is to actually do it. Two things have to happen. You have to learn the job, but there's a, there's, that's 50%. The other 50% is people have to learn you. And I remember uh-huh, thinking- yeah. I know me and my friends who think I'm really funny have known me for a while and that's what I have to do only I have to do it with the United States of America. I have to I have to like be around long enough for people to go, you know what? He's got a funny voice and a weird rhythm and his hair's odd, but if I can stick around long enough and they pick up on what it is I'm putting out there. So it's a two-way it's it's there's two things in this equation that need to happen and in you're only you can only do fifty percent, and the rest of it is people getting to know Seth Myers in this role. I still can't believe, and looking back, it never even occurred to me. But I threw away the advantage I had from being a Weekend Update anchor, which is I so firmly believed that in order to do this new job, I had to start with a standing monologue. I had to prove to everybody I could do something else, mm-hmm. and it turns out people don't want to learn your next move. And so that was basically the big shift we made was a year and a half into it. I started the show sitting at the desk, and I think everybody had liked me at Update and maybe felt a little weird about me as a late-night host, saw that, and was like, oh, right, this is what he does, and I, we like this more, and, and we're more comfortable watching it. I was going to say, I, I thought your only issue was your legs are withered. You have uh, withered, atrophied— Well, only one's withered. Well, if they were both withered, you could fix it with pants, <laughs> but when one's so clearly being dragged— You had a just a horribly— Withered, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the left leg. Uh, and It's the left leg. It looks like a streamer. Yeah. <laughs> and so you'd hop out with this, what looked like a, 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 a denim noodle hanging off of you. And yeah. then a lot of times when you were doing the monologue, you were teetering. Uh, and yep. I was always like, well, just let him sit. And you were defiantly saying, I can do it. I can, I can stand. Remember? And I don't know if you remember, but if a joke went really well, and the audience clapped, that was enough to knock me over. I do. So I had to never, I could never do so well in a monologue that the reaction was no, hot enough. No, you had to modulate it. It would knock me over. So I had to bring it down. And again, that's not how you want to be doing comedy, like aiming for a B minus. No. Um, well, listen, you got through that, as, as Lawrence said, year and a half. And that's the other thing too, is now especially, I think there was such a rigorous... This is what a talk show is. You know, when 93, when I was coming in, it was, this is the house. You're at the National Broadcasting Company. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of, Mm -hmm. you, this is how a show is done. The microphone is eight inches from your breastbone at the desk. You know, there was a lot of rigorous orthodoxy about what has to happen. I, I think the last vestiges of it were alive when we started. Very much of like, monologue, piece of comedy, commercial, comedy, commercial, Guest, like it, it, you know, and that if you mess that up at all, like the um, people would come in with paperwork and show you why you were wrong. Well, I got the like graphs, right? Also, is there anything worse than having a guest you adore and know that they're in their dressing room watching the monitor oh, oh, oh. when you're doing? No, I'm always <laughs> hoping you know, one of those. I'm always hoping they're not seeing it. I'm always hoping that the segment producer is talking to them because if it's someone I really hold in high esteem, the idea that they're watching is horrific. Uh, and I think the odds that they're watching now because of Zoom is higher than ever, which is also devastating to me, knowing that they're watching the first act of the show usually because they're waiting. Oh, see, I don't do it that way. We do it, we tape them separately. They are hermetically sealed from the comedy. I know it's a weird question to ask because I obviously love a live audience, but where are you on missing an audience? Because I gotta be honest, it's been sort of thrilling to do a show without an audience. I'm going to say I don't miss an audience on the show as much. It sounds crazy, but I would still need to go out and make appearances somewhere because I love screwing around with an audience and uh, talking to them mm-hmm. and trying to make something happen spontaneously in the moment and getting those laughs. I get a lot of energy from it. You and I talk in front of an audience. We're going to be thinking all about making it funny we're not going to get to most of the things I really want to talk about. And it's not going to have this feel, which I find much more compelling now at this stage in my life than, okay, I just did four minutes with Seth and he did his bit 
about, you know, Mr. Poopy Pants, which is sort of your humor, I suppose, and uh, yep. um, Mr. Wee Wee and, uh, and the, you know, the talking toilet. I wouldn't do them both on the same time as on your show. <laughs> I would split them up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd always go Poopy and then into Wee Wee or, you know, or Wee Wee into Poo Poo, whatever. But we'd do... They're, they're beat for beat the same character. <laughs> yeah. Different. But we'd get through so. your scatological, famous yeah. Seth scatological mm. Myers uh, uh, routines. Oh, or we could not and the audience would boo me out of the theater. Yeah. No, no, no. Look, hey, listen, Gallagher works. You know, it works. Yeah. Uh, your your crass. Uh, um, I just, I, I'm sorry. I just, I can't believe how blue you work uh, on the late night show and how it's always. Hey, can I ask a question about back when there was an audience? When? Okay. when can, like, oh, I love that you more or less say, said, can we be, can we go back to being real again <laughs> instead of pretending that I'm stop a, Mr. I want to stop pants. what you're doing. Can we go back to anything <laughs> but this? Um, what? Uh, let's go back to when I said yes to doing this. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> when in normal times do you go out and say hi to your audience before the show starts? Used to all the time. I used to go out and perform. I used to go out there and perform my ass off for them before the show. For how long? Years and years. But how long would you when you would go out? Like how much time would you spend? Too with them much before time. The show started? It was so fucking needy and wrong, and they loved it. And then I'd start my show, and if you look at some of those shows in the '90s, I'm out of breath in the monologue. Because of something I did for a studio audience, literally wading through the audience, singing songs at you know to them, uh, all this energy, I'd be out of breath and sweating in the monologue because I had just done something that only 200 people saw. What about you? What do you do? I go out and say hello and, and do basically five soft jokes exactly the same way every night to sort of set an internal baseline for me as to how good an audience they are. Hmm. Because that way, I don't like finding out on the first monologue joke how good they are. Right. Because then I spin out. Right. So I like to just say, okay, they're, they're this. And also, you know, I, it, it took me a while to figure this out, but um, they're very good. The sound guys on these shows are very good. It, it's when you're watching from home, they all seem to go about the same. Yes, the that's the problem, is that uh, the biggest mistake a novice makes is a lot of savers. So you go out there and you tell a joke. Now, at home, it does fine. It does okay. Right. But if you go, whoa, okay, a <laughs> lot of nothing. Didn't like that one, huh? They get Suddenly, everyone at home is thinking, you're educating people that it's not working. I hosted the Emmys in 2014. Fucking did it at the Emmys. I had it ready to go. I was like, the first joke that does bad, I'll say, jokes are, these jokes are like nominees. They can't all be winners. Right. And it was, I shouldn't have done it as soon as I did it because I was proud of it. I thought, oh, I'm so smart to have this pre-written saver. And I could just feel people do exactly what you said, judge themselves. And what? Oh, we thought, oh, you know, we thought that was a commensurate laugh for the right. material or the previous joke. they're not even thinking about it. They're all, you're performing in front of a room that's only thinking about themselves, you know? Yeah, I guess it is a night that is fully for their egos. <laughs> and the last thing they want anybody to say is like, there's another, hi, I would like you to know I also have an ego. Right. <laughs> yes, I know you're worried about winning the, the big award tonight, but my feelings count too. But uh, <laughs> you and I have learned the exact same lessons. I wish if I could if I could have written down all the lessons that I learned and handed them to you in a book, I don't think it would have made any difference because you just got to no. you gotta figure it out for yourself. You got to learn them. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, you got to learn them yourself. Um, I don't want to keep you, I've kept you over an hour. I have one last thing I want to talk about. I will, I rewatched something today because I was thinking about it. So um, I, after college, I worked for this improv theater in Amsterdam called Boom Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was there, I moved there in 1997, you went to Amsterdam mm -hmm. and filmed a piece with Ozzy Osbourne. And I was thinking about it today because I remember at our theater, at this uh, English-speaking American improv theater in Amsterdam, we all said, oh my God, Conan's here. Do you think he'll come and see a show? And it made me laugh so hard today, now 20 years later, to think if I was in a foreign country as a talk show, the last thing I would do <laughs> is to go, like, we're in Amsterdam for the night. What should we do? Yeah. Well, there's some guys doing Chicago-style improv. Have you ever seen that, Conan? And then we're going to get some McDonald's. <laughs> No, I was at the red light district the whole time. I was high. I was. I I have. I will say, a thing that you are the best in the world at that I find so anxiety inducing is going out 
on the street and shooting remotes. I just, I, I fall apart. Do you not have? I have, uh, I will tell you that, um, thank you, but I will tell you that it's, uh, I am always filled with anxiety. I think it was my first or second year going out for St. Patrick's Day and just standing outside of 30 Rock by the parade and just dawning on me. Other people have done this. What, this is not, nothing about this is new, and I don't like being around drunk people. Oh. And I don't like yeah, and that would be the, the, this at all. Yeah, being around uh, drunk people whose inhibitions are gone, as any club comic will tell you, is the worst way to work. And so where you want to be is someplace where they're not expecting you. And that's why I love to show up, you know, when I went with Steven Yeun to a, to a Korean spa. They're not... No one there is expecting that. They don't want it. They don't expect it. So you can find the quiet weirdness, you know. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, they sent me out to the Thanksgiving Day Parade my first year of late night. And they sent, they sent me places like, go to this big place where a lot of people have no inhibitions and it's really loud and your comedic wit will be drowned out and there's nothing original to be said about it. Yeah, of course. Of course you didn't want to do that. You're around people, but they're not an audience. No. So you can't help but think you're bombing, even though the goal wasn't to make them laugh. It's to take find something that later, like in two weeks when it's edited, will make a different group of people laugh. And so I just immediately, the amount of flop sweat I have in those situations is... Uh, yeah, I had, to, I had to get out of that. <laughs> I had to get out of that game quick. Yeah, but like I say, everyone has to find their own way. You have done a brilliant job. And I think it's a regret of mine that I don't know you better because uh, as you said at the beginning, this is, you know, there's an assumption that I know all the late night hosts and I've met all the late night hosts and I know some a little better than others, but I think it'd be surprising how much I don't know them. I live, you know, uh, I live in a different coast and also it's like in any a castle too, right? Like an <laughs> almost impenetrable castle. Yes, I have a. I actually have built an ivory tower, and I live up at top of it, and I'm contemptuous of other people. But it, um, but yeah. it reflects so much sunlight. It's a real <laughs> people get like burned impossible. for miles around. No, but I, 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 I. This podcast, this interview, is a chance to for me to tell you, you know, how much just a compare notes. And just talk to you and, and sort of do a little bit of a deep dive on what are you feeling? How have you experienced all of this? You know, the Lorne, the late night, sound out live till late night. I mean, you and I overlap in so many ways. And then also just to tell you that I really admire how you've handled yourself and the job you've done. You really have done a, a just a lovely job. And I do have a sentimental streak in me for that old late night show. And it's really meaningful to me that someone classy and smart is hosting that show. You know, it's, it makes me feel good. I'll sleep better tonight. Uh, well, it uh, means a ton coming from you, and it, very, it feels very full circle. The first talk show I ever did was you, when I'm sure someone dropped out, <laughs> and you guys just called up to 17. We actually, I remember, first. we did not invite you. You, you, came, you yeah. came during rehearsal, and we felt so bad we just mm -hmm. kept rolling. It definitely didn't air. You, you talked to me. Oh God, no! Because it was too short. No, it was only like two minutes. Well, you I said a lot of really. You said a lot of really controversial stuff. You had very right off the bat. I jumped right into it. You, you had a lot of theories. Let's just say that uh, you know very strong. <laughs> you had a weird religion you had built. Uh, and I want to. Uh, this was uh, this was <laughs> two thousand one, and and everything I was saying was also not okay then. <laughs> this isn't a case. I'm not saying it was a different time. Oh, no, no, no. These were the all stuff you were saying. Things no, no, no. This is not one of those, let's look at the tape and now in retrospect. In 2001, the stuff you were saying was hate-filled. Uh, yep. It was completely off the rails. Um, the crowd was furious. And I don't know why there was a crowd at rehearsal. I'm justifying my own bad improv now. Uh, <laughs> I lost everybody. <laughs> I lost everybody right away. <laughs> Uh, well, well, thank you. I, uh, it is really, uh, uh, you know, again, everybody who was part of a legacy of keeping this show alive, I owe a great debt to, but um, particularly how much I watched yours. Yours was the one I watched the most. And so uh, this, is, this is great to do. Well, I'm forwarding, uh, I'm telling Letterman that. Uh, and uh, that's a powerful guy who can, he can <laughs> fuck you up. You're going to be beaten tomorrow. Um, hey, listen, and let's, uh, what I'd like to do is... I'd like to follow this up with at a time when we are allowed to dine together. Um, I'd Please. like to come in in New York. It would be really fun to download 
So uh, I will reach out when I'm in New York. Uh, don't call me. If, I would love that. Don't call me if you're no, in LA because no, you know. No, no. I'll be with I'll be with Clooney buying. <laughs> you have your you have your LA friends buying fake blood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, listen. Thank you so much. This has been a joy, a real joy. Thank you. On the way in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the jitterbug and the Watusi. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone (laughs) cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's (laughs) happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less Filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm -hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it's less filling Miller Lite or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time. Don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah, and we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up, and I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I? it's not a good match? I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Conan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Conan. A few weeks ago, you gave Sona absolute hell for getting you the wrong tipped pen in her role as assistant. Is that right? Well, first of all, I disagree that I gave her absolute hell. I really don't think I did. Sona, what do you think? I think you gave me hell. Absolute hell? Absolute hell. Was it warranted? It's all relative. I disagree. All I did was recount that I asked Sona to get me this very particular pen. And yes, I am particular. I am, after all, a writer. Uh, I am a, uh, I think I could say I'm an artist of a a sort. This is my, this is my craft. And so this is the tool that is essential to my craft. And so, yes, I'm a little particular about it. So I asked Sona, can you get me a precise grip, rolling ball, a pilot pen? Um, They have a rubber grip. They're fantastic. And can you please make sure it's bold? And Sona said, on it. And then suddenly I get this uh, shipment of pens, this bag of pens are handed to me. And uh, they're a fine, fine point, fine point. Uh, And I hate a fine point pen. It's just this little scratchy pen that barely gives you any ink. It's like, hmm, I'll give you this much ink. Can I have a little more ink? Maybe tomorrow. Yes, enough for now. No, but I really just want to doodle and it's enough ink for now. It's fine for now. Fine. 
And I, I just begged for a ballpoint pen. And these are not expensive pens. These are- At least you didn't wait like a year and a half until you told me that they were the wrong kind. I waited 14 least, months, okay, not a year not and a half. At least you now. brought it. At least you brought it up and then you dropped it immediately after. You didn't dwell on it for hours on text. Just, uh, I just thought of a really good idea for the show. I'm just going to take out my, oh good, it's my pilot pen. I'm going to write this idea down. It's so great for the show. And uh, wait, it's only- writing down the first part of the idea. It's not writing okay. down the right. whole idea. There's a pen here. Listen. Hold it. I'm not done yet. What? Pen, pen, please. No. 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 That's all the ink for now. <laughs> I'm a miser with my ink. Ah, my precious ink. <laughs> Only a little bit for now. What do you think? I'm bored. Then Bold Pen comes in. You want ink? I've got so much ink. I'm vomiting ink. Yeah, it's just this pen that shoots out ink everywhere, and it's just fantastic. It's just like Jackson Pollock, trust me, used a bold, precise grip pilot. Just one splat at the canvas, and he had a $800 million painting. <laughs> Bingo, bango, bongo. So that's what I like. It's, it's like the differences between... Scrooge is the fine point pen. And then where's the bold point pen? It's Zorba the Greek. <laughs> Live life. Opa, opa, everybody dance. Ink for everyone. Ink, because ink is life and life is short. Oh anyway, God. as your diligent and forward-thinking producer, I'm wondering, <laughs> you've spent so much time talking about these goddamn pens What's the state? Are we getting anyone? Can we capitalize off these? Are they not sponsoring us? Have we heard anything? Sona, have they sent any no. of these pens? They haven't sent any pens? No. So a lot of times when you mention something on the podcast or the show, they send it. And you did a whole yeah. thing about how much you love these pens. And I have heard nothing from Right. Pilot. It's weird because I briefly mentioned uh, that I, I was telling a story and I said, and a guy drove up in a Porsche 911. <laughs> Porsche sent me six 911s <laughs> in different colors. And they said, tell us which one you want. And I was, was like, oh, that's just as crazy. But wow, this, I sort of like this uh, pearl white one. And I said, so I'll just send the others back to you. And they went, ah, just keep them all. So, <laughs> you, and it was just Did you a, give them away to other people or did you? know, you? I could have. Yeah. yeah I probably should have. Yeah. I probably should have. I had the others destroyed. Oh. I hired a man. <laughs> what? With a hammer to destroy them rather than see them bring joy to anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, oh I, I, tied God. The, I, I tied them all together to make one really uh, wide Porsche. That's uh, <laughs> 911 times six. And I, I drive it around because uh, I want to go. My new title is Captain Duschenberg, and I just drive it around. <laughs> and I wear a yachting cap, and I'm the guy that drives six 911s strapped together with twine. Uh, I drive the middle one, but sometimes I hop into one of the other ones uh, to make a quick course correction. Uh, but anyway, uh, anyway, back to the pens. Yeah, if you think about it, if you think about how much time I spent talking about the Pilot Precise Grip, a uh, rolling ball with rubber grip that's okay. bold and black. All right. God, wouldn't it be so great if they sent you just a case of them and they were all fine print? Oh my God. If that happened. Yes. Oh my God. Please send fine tip. Oh. No, 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 no. Not even, don't even joke fine. about that. Don't <laughs> even joke. Tip. No, no, no. Fine don't. What's smaller no, no, no. than fine tip hairline? Yes. Oh, they have one that actually takes ink away from the paper. <laughs> they have a... It's three grades beyond fine that if you if you hold it up to anything, like you could hold this up to the original Declaration of Independence and it would suck out all the ink immediately. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. Nano tip. It's very, it's like, yeah, it's the black hole of pens, literally. Uh, and it was predicted. It's predicted by some of the great physicists. Um, no. God, I, I've given them so much airtime. We are not getting yeah. paid. Uh, and you know what? I'm fine. We live in, why should I get free pilot? Precise grip, rolling ball, okay. uh, pens. I Can shouldn't. I say, this has angered me so much that if they send it, I'm just going to trash all of them. <laughs> well, I'm going to put all of them in the trash. That's terrible. You will never see those pens. How many times Sona has a company sent me something and you didn't even tell me about it, you just took it? How many times? I, be, excuse and be honest. me. Be, be honest. I always don't even say that. No, now you're making me feel like I steal things. No, I tell you, this came for you. I knew you wouldn't want it, so I took it. That's how I frame it. 
And it's but, already it's already at home and in use when you tell me half the yes, time. Yes, yes, that's true. No, I, to be fair, yeah. you don't. You tell me, but sometimes you're like, oh yeah, they sent you this really cool thing. I knew you wouldn't want it, so I took it home. Yeah, I plugged it in, and now it's washing clothes at my house. Yes, and I'm like, oh, that sounds like a nice. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's really great. amazing. It's from Sweden. No, but if if Pilot sends you pens. Just to spite you, I'm just going to throw them all away. No, don't throw them away. And I'm going to film myself throwing them away. (laughs) And then I'm going to send you video of me tossing all the pens into the trash. I feel that's that's ecologically unsound. I don't think, and that's wasteful. I don't think you should do that. I think what you should do is you should get out a knife and you should pare down the tips so they're super fine. That would be the way to get me. (laughs) Yes. That way nothing's wasted and you've gone out of your way to make them super fine. Uh, Pilot, the ball is in your court. (sighs) Literally the ball as in rolling ball. Ah, the precise grip rolling ball. Or as they say in Espanol, bola rodante. Use promo code FINETIP. Here, why are the instructions on the back in, in Spanish? Escritura suave, tinta liquida, resistele el agua y no se descola. Disponible en tinta negra, azul, roja, verde y morada. También disponible en punta extra fina. No! In the end, it says also available in extra fine point. <gasps> That's what it says. Pilot, you know what to do. Ah! Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend with Sonam Obsession and Conan O'Brien as himself. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. The show is engineered by Will Becton. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.